Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 87. You know, we owe a lot to Doug Horn. As I mentioned before, Doug Horn was the chief analyst for military records at the Assassination Records Review Board, and to my knowledge, he was the only person associated with the ARRB that wrote extensively about the JFK assassination after the time that the board wound down. His five-volume set entitled Inside the Assassination Records Review Board is incredibly insightful, and it fills in the blanks on many of the things that we've been speculating over as we listened to the audio tapes from the ARRB proceedings, many of which were recorded with him in the room. And as the ARRB undertook truly the last official government review that has been undertaken related to the assassination. It's now time to pivot away from Stringer in this discussion, but we still have an obligation to understand a little bit more about Floyd Reby. We know that there were major conflicts in certain elements of Stringer's accounts and certain elements of the accounts provided by this man, Reby, the photography student in attendance that night at the autopsy, the man who was assisting Stringer. In our last episode, you heard much from Reby that emanated from an earlier taped conversation between David Lifton and Reby. It was more than 20 years after that taped conversation that Reby would once again address these same topics in front of an official government body. By the time that Reby made his way in front of the ARRB lawyers, his story had migrated significantly over that two-decade period. It was a stunning transition between the earlier statements he made to Lifton on tape and what he said under oath to the ARRB lawyers. But that transition had been happening over time, in the form of various conversations that occurred over that approximate 20-year period, and as those conversations, once they were known, would eventually demonstrate. For today's episode, we are going to hear audio excerpts from Floyd Reby's ARRB testimony as we have for other witnesses who attended the autopsy. And to make it easier, before you hear those excerpts, I am going to summarize some of what Reby said, pointing out many of the relevant items in Reby's testimony. Like all the audio testimony, it's tedious and long, so I have elected to edit it down to the more relevant portions for you. But as always, I urge you to listen to the entire testimony. It's long enough that it's still going to be a wander of two episodes. At the end of the Stringer episodes, I was left with a distinct impression about Stringer, that he was, well, plain scared to death, and that, for the most part, here was a guy that just went along to get along. And I came to that conclusion independently before I picked up and started reading Doug Horn's book. Volume 1 of Horn's book came in the mail a few days after I finished the episodes on Stringer. Not that you have to be all that astute to come to the conclusions that I did. And... Not that I want to say that great minds think alike, but I will say this. Much of what I was concluding was based simply on listening to the recordings and listening to Stringer do his best to stay out of controversy and, time after time, possibly perjure himself and, at the very least, contradict himself in inescapable ways. And what I surmised and tried to share with you seems to me to be more than validated by what Doug Horn wrote about Stringer 
in these circumstances in Volume 1 of his five-volume book. The one big difference was, of course, something pretty simple. Doug Horn was there, right in the middle of it, and I was not. Nothing trumps being right there. You and I will never be able to see or experience just exactly what transpired and the nuances of why certain questions were or were not asked and what really happened outside of the official record that truly had some bearing on how you might conclude on things. The good news is that he gave us the gift of his book for us all to gain a better and more insightful view of what went on underneath the covers and what he saw firsthand occur and what he thought about these witnesses himself. A good example of that is some of the comments he made about Stringer and his view on what kind of an individual Stringer was and what some of his motivations might have been to act in the way he did, answer questions in the way he did, change his story in some cases the way he did. So before we pivot into Horn's story about Reby, let's start with Horn's observations about Stringer. And I'll start now straight from Horn's Volume 1. Early in Stringer's deposition, Jeremy Gunn made very sure for the record that Mr. Stringer understood that the federal law against perjury applied to his testimony. And there was a particular reason for this. We had in our possession an audio tape of a telephone interview in August of 1972 between independent researcher David Lifton and John Stringer. In that interview, Stringer said that most of the damage to the head was in the back of the head, in the occipital region. In the early 1990s, in a newspaper interview in Florida, Stringer contradicted this, saying that the back of the head was intact and that the damage to the skull was on the right side, above the right ear. He also told the ARRB staff by telephone about three months prior to his deposition that the damage to the skull was to the right side, above the right ear. We wanted very much to try to figure out why he had changed his mind and hoped to get the witness to open up by springing the Lifton interview tape on him without warning. I'll stop here in the reading and make a comment. You've heard the tape in a previous episode that they just referred to, so I won't play it here again. But we all know what Stringer did. Perjure himself, possibly. And even if he had not perjured himself, he most certainly did lie. But what we don't know is why. We may never know the real truth of the matter, but reading Doug Horn's book will give you some possible reasons why. Horn goes on to say the following about Stringer, and I think you will find it very interesting. Now let's get back to the story told in Doug Horn's book. Next, Jeremy Gunn showed John Stringer the Boswell skull. That is, the skull model upon which Dr. Boswell had drawn the region of missing bone in the skull at his deposition on February 26, 1996, almost five months earlier. Stringer stated that there, where Dr. Boswell had indicated missing bone in the occipital region of the skull model, well, Stringer now said that President Kennedy's scalp, with the hair on it, was intact, entirely intact, in the occipital region. In fact, Stringer said that all of President Kennedy's scalp and hair were present. However, Stringer said the scalp in the occipital region could be peeled back and that some of the underlying occipital bone was disrupted and fractured, but that it was not destroyed. And he said that the large deficit in the skull 
was just above and forward of the right ear in the parietal region. Next, Jeremy had me play back on a television monitor an excerpt of a videotape of Floyd Reby, Stringer's assistant at the autopsy as he was being interviewed by David Lifton in 1989. In the videotape, Floyd Reby was demonstrating with a bootleg autopsy photograph the apparent intact back of President Kennedy's head by tracing out with his finger the area that he remembers was readily, quote-unquote, blown out or missing at autopsy. Okay, I'll pause there for a moment. There is more in Horn's documentation, but no need to go there. It's consistent with some things you've already heard. I'll just go straight to the point and relay what Doug Horn said about Stringer's testimony and Gunn's examination of it. Jeremy Gunn's questioning had once again been masterful, even if Stringer had not budged. Stringer had clearly changed his opinion about where the large defect in the head was in 1972, and he said at that time that it was in the occipital region, where you lay back on the rear of your head while in the bathtub. Fast forward, and he was now insisting it was primarily in the right side above the right ear, which coincided nicely with the autopsy photographs in the archives and the HSCA conclusions, which were based upon these images. The voice on the audio tape of the 1972 interview was clearly his voice, and there was no doubt about that whatsoever. Where he had clearly said that the wound was in the occipital region, So why, I asked myself, would Stringer attempt to hide behind such a lame excuse as, quote, if I said it, unquote, when there was no doubt at all that he did say it, no doubt at all to anyone who had listened to the 1972 interview tape. Had someone covertly directed him to support the authenticity of the images in the autopsy photographs under oath or else? He had denied under oath being coerced or coached, but had he made a conscious decision to reverse himself, and if so, when and why? The first publication of the autopsy images was in 1988, and since then they had widely appeared in four or five assassination books. I wondered if Stringer had reversed himself because he was inwardly afraid of the possible ominous implications of government fraud and duplicity and the differences between his actual memory of a gaping occipital defect in the back of the head and what was being published in so many assassination books. Back of the head images that were intact in clear opposition to what he remembered. In other words, I posited it could be that internally he was very much conflicted and disturbed by this cognitive dissonance, but that he had consequently decided to play it safe by deciding to vouch publicly for the authenticity and accuracy of the photographs in the official government collection, even though he knew it meant reversing himself and possibly looking foolish. He was no doubt well aware that David Lifton had published excerpts from his 1972 interview with Stringer in his 1981 book, Best Evidence, and that, consequently, his remarks about a large occipital defect were well known. By the time he publicly reversed himself about the occipital defect in a Florida newspaper interview circa 1993, Stringer had had plenty of time to consider how to publicly respond to the bootleg autopsy photographs, showing the rear of the head intact, since they had been appearing in books since 1988. Whether John Stringer was coerced or whether he decided to lie of his own accord, presumably to protect himself by 
making statements consistent with the official photographs held by the federal government, he had plenty of time to prepare for this line of questioning, and it certainly did not catch him by surprise. He was clearly expecting questions of this nature and stuck by his prepared answers. When we broke for lunch, something occurred with John Stringer that gave me a clue to this man and confirmed the possibility that my hypothesis about Stringer muzzling himself could be true. By the very nature of the way the depositions were conducted with Jeremy doing the questioning, Jeremy was inevitably viewed by most of the deponents as the bad cop, and I was often viewed as the good cop, since I was not talking. I was not asking them any questions at all during the deposition and was the person who had assisted them with the logistics of travel, etc. Stringer kept as far away from Jeremy at lunch as he could and stuck with me like glue. I told him I had been in the Navy too, to help put his mind at ease and give us something to talk about while in the cafeteria line at Archives 2. During lunch, Stringer confided to me that his son was a Navy captain and that his son's selection board for admiral would soon roll around, and that he really hoped he could make flag rank. This was a very meaningful comment to me, as it told me that Stringer was not the kind of person to rock the boat, and that he was the kind of person who would probably go along to get along. Was it possible he did not want to endanger his son's chances for selection to flag rank by going out on a limb and denouncing the autopsy photographs as inconsistent with what he saw at the autopsy? If that was his state of mind, it says more about Stringer's perceptions about how the government works than about how the government really does work. For example, we had no intention of releasing our deposition transcripts until near the end of the ARRB lifespan, well after his son's selection board would have met, and furthermore, we were certainly not plugged into any Navy selection board for the rank of rear admiral. Something else would occur after lunch during the second half of the deposition that would reinforce this impression I had of John Stringer. As the Stringer deposition resumed following lunch, Jeremy launched into the subject of how many pictures were taken by John Stringer and the November 22, 1963 receipt from Captain John Stover to Special Agent in Charge Roy Kellerman. Okay, I'll pause here from the reading and remind the listeners of a comment made in a prior episode that Stover signed a receipt following the assassination that he knew contained a false inventory of the photos. Stringer did not construct the receipt, nor the falsity in it. Rather, it appears that he was forced to sign it, and at the very least, based on his account, he pointed out the error in the count to Captain Jack Stover, who was the individual requesting the receipt be signed. It was never changed. Okay, let's return to the reading now from the book. There was one exchange during the discussion of the brain photographs which was extremely revealing about the deponent's psychology, particularly in regard to the Kennedy assassination and which was not reproduced earlier. To me, this explains the John Stringer that signed a crucial photographic receipt that he did not agree with on or about November 23, 1963 a person who knowingly signed an extremely important medico-legal inventory of the assassinated president's autopsy photographs on November 10, 1966, even though it contained also a false statement about the completeness of the collection. And here was a person who reversed himself about where the large defect in President Kennedy's head was located. Stringer would say, 
And I quote, You don't object to things, and even though some people do, they don't last long. John Stringer, although on the surface a pretty decent guy, was one of the great herd, a member of the herd who learns very early as a government employee, and especially in the military culture, that those who make waves and rock the boat don't last very long. Their careers are destroyed if they do rock the boat. The majority of those who work for bureaucracies of any kind are of just this mindset. You don't object to things. It's a survival skill that most people learn quite early in their careers if they want to maintain secure, long-term employment and be promoted on a regular basis. Furthermore, in the military, unquestioning obedience is considered a virtue, and John Stringer was immersed in the military subculture of the Navy from 1942 through 1974. He was someone who would go along to get along, that he would do anything to stay below the radar, and who routinely and regularly deferred to authority. Okay, I'll pause again from the reading. Well, there you have it. That's pretty much what we already concluded on our own about John Stringer. But here is Doug Horn confirming all of our earlier calculus on just who John Stringer was. And of course, Horn really was a guy in the room, and he could see it all. All I have to say is that power is a very strange thing. You have to get to a point in life, honestly, where you're willing to stand up to power and to suffer the consequences for what you believe in. You have to get to that point before you're not so fearful of everything else around you. This man was clearly not there, and this man, understandably, was still trying to just get along in life. And, of course, to protect the people around him that he loved and cared for. Certainly that part is always relevant. Life is a complicated thing, you know, and this is but one more example of it. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 87. Reby's audio testimony is interesting because it touches on more than just what you might expect. That is, more than just the photographs and photographic record. Right off the bat, you'll hear Reby answer questions from Gunn indicating that during the period since the assassination, he had spoken only one other previous time to a government official in the course of one of the government's investigations of the assassination, and that his discussions were merely over the phone. Reby's statements or testimony had not previously been taken under oath. It's pretty amazing that 30-plus years after the assassination, here was one of the two photographers at the autopsy, and those two were the only identified photographers as being present in an official capacity to take photos of the autopsy, and that he had not been placed under oath, and he had not been exhaustively questioned, and he had not had his testimony taken. This ARRB deposition would be his first and last time that such an epic event would happen. That lapse of time seems incredible in light of the significant controversy around the photographs themselves and the specific controversies surrounding the current official collection of autopsy photographs contained in the National Archives. But really, timing is everything in life, and at the moment he was interviewed by the HSCA investigator, Reby was quite reluctant to talk, because he wasn't sure if the secrecy restrictions had been lifted yet. Keep in mind, 
that was a period where participants in the autopsy were just coming to the end of the original 15-year secrecy period that was forced upon them as part of the autopsy proceedings. If you recall, all who were present that night at the autopsy signed a secrecy document, and so that reluctance was still present in 1978, despite the fact that the HSCA was a well-celebrated investigative body of Congress that clearly had sanction to investigate and find the truth out. For listeners, we have to appreciate that it was a moment in time where Reby and others still had concerns about discussing the matter, even in that sanctified venue. You'll also hear Reby clearly indicate that identification tags were routinely used during the taking of pictures at an autopsy, tags that would allow anyone to identify the subject or the item that was being photographed. A simple common sense element of autopsy photography that was clearly absent when working on the president. Whether this was overtly done as an additional layer of secrecy around the photographs or whether it was done because the entire process was being rushed is not clear. Certainly, it is one more element that fuels suspicion around the photographs as it simply makes insertion of fakes or alterations within the collection just that much easier. So, as a juror, you have to look at the totality of the evidence around the goings-on with the photographs before you decide whether this was an innocent oversight or an innocently overt action or whether it was just something more sinister. You will also hear Reby answer a question when asked about whether video was ever taken at an autopsy at Bethesda. He answered positively that videotaping was something that was done in a prior autopsy. He had witnessed one occur prior to November 1963, and it was performed by, in his words, the Medical Research Center at Bethesda. That was probably his terminology for some element of the medical school itself that did so for educational purposes. Keep that in mind when we fast forward to a later episode related to William Pitzer and the assertions around whether he took video from the gallery or through an existing videotaping system in the morgue. When asked, Reby clearly established that it was standard practice for the autopsy photographer who had taken the pictures to go ahead and actually develop the autopsy pictures himself. Obviously, the circumstance with the president's photographs was an extraordinary matter, and they were not handled this way. They were taken elsewhere for development and printing. We'll get to that in an upcoming episode. Not so sinister on the surface, but was there more to it? Certainly a weakness in the chain of custody, as we have spoken about earlier. You'll hear Reby articulate that his favorite camera was his own personal camera, which was a Canon 35mm. It was just easier to use. Somewhat hard to believe that they would let him use his personal camera for official business. But apparently that was allowed back then, and he implied that he had used the Canon 35mm for autopsies in the past, prior to the autopsy of President Kennedy. When discussing the film, Reby confirmed that he provided both color negative and color transparency film for the 4x5 camera that Stringer was using and that it was definitely only Kodak film. Because in his words, that's all we had. That comment is significant, as you recall, because Stringer indicated that some of the photographic material that he reviewed under oath seemed to be potentially derived from ANSCO film and not Kodak film. Stringer, too, remember, only Kodak film. Remember, ANSCO is another film manufacturer. 
So all this implied that someone else took the particular pictures that Stringer was being shown during the questioning, and that such were not ones taken by either Stringer or Reby at the time of the official autopsy. Reby would also confirm that both the color transparency film and the color negative film was loaded into the duplex cassettes that held two pieces of film at one time. There appeared to be at least a little confusion or unclear discussion on that at various times in other testimony we've heard, so I wanted to point that out to the listener. Reby also confirmed that there were three cameras that were brought in to take the photos that night at the autopsy. One was the Speed Graflex, the second was a view camera, and the third was his own 35-millimeter Canon camera. Reby was asked if he was there when the president's casket arrived. He would describe the casket that he saw as being gunmetal gray. And here's the big one. It was clearly of a shipping casket type. It was not the high-end casket that the president had left Parkland in and arrived at Edwards Air Force Base in. Reby responded by claiming to have been there at the moment they opened the casket. And so this was validation that this rather plain casket was what President Kennedy was in at the time he arrived at the morgue. Again, take your pick on the conflicting testimony between this and other witnesses on which casket the president actually arrived in at Bethesda. And he also indicated that the president was in a rubberized body bag at the moment that the casket was opened in the morgue, right in front of him. This statement, like the casket description, also raises significant questions. Reby also indicated that while Stringer placed no restrictions on him for taking any given photograph, he actually did give him instruction to take pictures of the individuals in the room because it would likely be needed later on for historical purposes. Indications are that the taking of those gallery and people photographs is what prompted the Secret Service or the FBI to eventually stop him from doing that and confiscate the roll of film and expose it. And then you have to ask yourself, why were they so focused on this aspect of things? Reby's recollection was that he loaded all of the cassettes with color and that there would not have been any black and white pictures taken. We know that to be in contrast to what is in the collection in the National Archives, although you can certainly print black and white photos from color negatives, but it does take some work to do so. I have not seen any satisfactory reconciliation of the many conflicting photographic formats and picture counts anywhere in the literature. That is, between what Reby said here and what is in the official photographic record. Clearly, black and white prints were made and black and white negatives are in existence. Reby would also confirm positively when asked that Stringer took pictures of inside the cranium, close-ups of the president's brain but he does not recall any probes being placed in the head to follow bullet paths of missiles traversing the brain. One interesting comment regarding the one roll of 35mm film that Reby shot that was then exposed to light and destroyed by the Secret Service. Reby would indicate that he took only five or six shots on that roll, so it really wasn't a full roll of film that was actually destroyed. That is not generally discussed in many other places. In many discussions about that roll of film, I've seen the implication be that it was a full roll of film that had been shot. He did not remember whether that 35mm roll was black and white or color. Now, what is more revealing is that he also revealed that he actually took a lot more photographs. So where did all of that film go? 
Reby would go on to say that he took somewhere between 99 and 111 pictures in total, with most of them being press packs. And perhaps one cassette was used, but his memory was cloudy on some of those details. Reby confirmed that he thought he took pictures of what was left of President Kennedy's brain as it was being placed in a stainless steel pail. He confirmed that he did not participate in the post-autopsy review of the brain. He also confirmed that the right side and the rear occipital area was gone, and he recognized the flap that so famously sticks out in one of the photographs. He was within five or six feet of Kennedy when viewing the head. Now I'll pause for many more comments, and let's finish up by listening to the actual audio testimony of Floyd Reby. Mr. Do you swear the testimony you are about to give in this matter will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Mr. Reby, could you state your full name, please? Floyd Albert Reby. How do you spell your last name? R-I-E-B-E. The subject of this deposition today is the autopsy of President John F. Kennedy. Mr. Reby, were you present at the autopsy of President Kennedy? Yes, I was. Before we went on the record, I explained to you that uh, the def- this deposition would be under oath. Do you understand that it is under oath? Yes, I do. And that you have a responsibility to make statements uh, that you are about to make uh, as accurately and honestly as you can? Yes, I do. Mr. Reby, is there anything that you can think of today that would keep you from answering any questions fully and honestly to the best of your ability? No. I'm going to be asking you a series of questions that relate principally to the autopsy of President Kennedy. I'd like you to let me know if any of my questions are unclear, and I'll attempt to rephrase them or clarify them. You shouldn't hesitate to ask me to revise the question or restate the question if there is any uh, unclarity in your mind. Mr. Levy, have you ever previously had your deposition taken regarding the autopsy of President Kennedy? No. Have you ever spoken with any government officials who have had any role in investigating the autopsy of President Kennedy? Once. (coughs) Once over the phone. Could you tell me just a little bit about that, when it approximately was? I don't even remember that. Uh, At the time, I didn't want to talk to the man because I didn't know that uh, the security had been lifted and uh, I didn't didn't talk to him about what I saw or what happened that night. Were you under the impression that the person who called you worked for the House Select Committee on Assassinations? Yes. Did you ever subsequently speak to a person on the House Select Committee on Assassinations? I, I don't think so. Have you ever spoken with any private researchers subsequently about the assassination? Yes, I have. Do you remember the names of any of those with whom you have spoken? Uh, Mr. Lifton. Can't think of the other man's name, but he lives up here in Baltimore. Is that Harry Livingston? Livingston, yes. Okay. <coughs> Did John Stringer teach any classes? Uh, yeah, he 
did uh, not that much that was mostly the school staff did all the instructing. Had you yourself been in any classes that Mr. Stringer taught? Oh, yeah. Did you receive any training in medical photography specifically? Yes. Was that, in fact, the subject of that was the work? Uh, the subject of the school. As a part of the training that you received in medical photography, were you taught anything about autopsy photography? Yes. Had you completed your coursework by November 22, 1963? No, no I had Approximately how much time had you spent in coursework prior to the uh, assassination? Class started in March, I believe it was. That's March of 1963? Yes. So this would be six, 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 six seven months? months yeah. yeah. Prior to November 22, 1963, was the autopsy of President Kennedy the only autopsy you witnessed where there had been a gunshot wound? Yes. Was there a standard type of film that was used in autopsies? Uh, just black and white or color combination of two. At Bethesda in 1963, was color negative or color transparency Either one. Either one. We used both. There was no set procedure, one or the other, that you Well, it, it depended on, uh, you know, I'd usually, when I'd go down, the couple of times I went down on my own, I asked, what should I use? And six, one, half a dozen, really. But for this one, I, I loaded all, I believe it was, uh, color negatives. May have had some transparencies there. In the other autopsies that you participated in, that is the autopsies other than President Kennedy, were there any identification cards or markers that would be used to be placed yes. next to the body? Yes. What did those look like? Uh, similar to a business card, it's a little bit smaller, but it was in centimeters and it had the uh, National Naval medical center initials across the bottom to identify them as to where they were taken and to give them approximate size for printing if they wanted a one-to-one -one print then they enlarge it up to the centimeter scale up to so many centimeters and that would be a one-to-one -one scale. Did those cards have numbers of the autopsy to assist in the identification of the person whose autopsy is being conducted? Yes, they had a handwritten mark number on it. In addition to the handwritten number and the other things that you said, was there any other information that was contained on these identification cards? I don't think so. I've been saying identification cards for it. Is there any other term that you would use to... No, it sounds logical. I mean, I didn't know what they were, any technical name for them, just that that's what they were used for. While you were at Bethesda, did you ever see any motion pictures taken of any autopsy? Uh, some video I have, yes, from the Medical Research Center. People came over in the video school there. And approximately when did you see the videotape of an autopsy? It was way before then. 
way before November. But I don't remember when. Now, in the ordinary course, and I'm not speaking of President Kennedy's autopsy, where was the film developed after the autopsy? No, no, the portal van. Who was responsible for developing the photos? Whoever took them. So in the other autopsies that you participated in, did you develop the film yourself? Yes. After the film was developed in the ordinary course, what happened to those photographs? Well, they were dried and uh, mis- given to Mr. Springer, and he'd go over them for technical quality. And we'd make our prints and then turn them into Mr. Springer, and he'd send them out to the appropriate position. Do you know where the films ended up being filed or stored? The films were filed, I believe, right there in Mr. Springer's office. We had these humongous file cabinets, many file cabinets. Was there a preference in terms of the type of camera that would be used? And I'll just speak in very general terms of 4x5 versus 35mm. Well, it depended on the photographer. Uh, quite a few of the people there liked that old Nikon that was 35mm, and that was the staff. And uh, some of them liked that uh, Rolly, Rolex, it was a 120. But I preferred my own camera, which was a Canon 35, because it, it was newer and easier to use than that ancient piece of equipment they had there. Or the Speed Graphics 4x5. I'd now like to go to the events of November 22nd, 1963. My first question to you will be is, when did you first hear about the assassination of President Kennedy? I don't remember the exact time that the word came from the Washington Post. They called and wanted to buy, or wanted to get negatives, the autopsy. And at the time, I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. I mean, I knew the president was assassinated and all, but I didn't know the body was coming to uh, Bethesda. And it was about an hour or so later that we got the word. After you received that call from the Washington Post, did you contact anyone? Uh, yeah, I called Mr. Springer at home. Well, first I went up and saw the chief of the day, and he didn't know what I was talking about. He didn't have any word that they were coming there. So I called Mr. Springer at home and told him what had happened. And he said, call him back if I get any official word on it. And let him know that they were bringing him. Then you did hear something like official word within the next hour or so? Yeah. How did you get that information, do you recall? From the chief of the day. What did he say to you? He told us, well, he told me that they were bringing President Kennedy there to Bethesda for an autopsy and to get ready. And I called Mr. Strength because I figured it would be more like his line being all this classification of security and all this stuff on there. And I didn't think I was going to have to have anything to do with it, but anyway, Mr. Stringer came in and, and I had to come up to the main entrance to the hospital to identify him so he could come in and go ahead and do the work. 
Now, when you said that you needed to identify him, although I think you and I both know what you're talking about, I'll ask the question, why was it that you needed to identify the director? Well, they weren't letting anybody in the hospital. Who who is they? I believe they were Secret Service. And uh, he had to have, you know, he had to have a reason to be there. So it was just that the security people were unfamiliar with Mr. Stringer, is that right? Prior to the time that Mr. Stringer arrived, did you do anything to prepare for taking photographs of the autopsy? Yes, I went down and made and got film ready. Made sure I had a lot of uh, uh, film cassette holders for a view camera. I got the view camera put on the tripod, and I had extra rolls of film for uh, the 35 millimeter that I was using. Which I only shot one roll of that. And some film packs for the uh, speed graphics that I was using. And by the film packs, you mean the packs of twelve? Yes. Shots, and those were black and white. Yeah. From what you said, is that right? Got film ready. Made sure I had a lot of uh, uh, film cassette holders for a view camera. I got the view camera put on the tripod, and I had extra rolls of film for. Uh, the 35 millimeter that I was using, which only shot one roll of that, and some film packs for the uh, speed graphics that I was using. And by the film packs, you mean the packs of 12? Yes. Shots, and those were black and white? Yeah. From what you said, is that right? Now, you say that you've got a you mounted a view a camera. Four by five view camera Mr. Stringer was using. Okay. Now, is that different from the speed graph? Yes, it's not. At the, the view camera is not a handheld camera. It has to be on a tripod. Do you now recall what kind of film you got for the view camera? I got, I got just color, I believe. And it was some of each. Uh, transparencies in English. Do you remember the brand or any other specifications on the Kodak? That's all we had here in the school. Do you remember any other specifications on the type of film? No. But it's your best recollection now that you've had both color negative and transparencies. transparencies. Were both the color negatives and color transparencies both mounted in the cassettes? Yes. There's two per cassette. Oh, just a moment. She needs to say he's going to walk. He's tired? Yeah, I think so. Okay. After Mr. Stringer arrived, did he suggest that you get any other equipment or film for the autopsy? Yeah, he told me to get my strobe unit, which I didn't have. And I grabbed one and Evidently, uh, which I didn't know at the time, wasn't fully charged. It didn't last long. What is a strobe unit? An electronic flash. Would that be connected to a camera? Yes. So that it would uh, fire synchronously with the the camera? (laughs) (laughs) Just so I'm clear now, were there three cameras that were taken into the room? Three. One was the speed graph one was the view camera that was right. tripod mounted, and the third was the 35 millimeter. Yes. And the 35 millimeter camera was your own. Is that correct? Yes. And what brand was that? The Canon. You mentioned that the speed light was connected to one of the cameras. 
Yeah, what was it? More or less like an internet, uh, generic connector. And I use that on my camera too. It's just a little bayonet plug. So it could have been connected to any of the three cameras. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Prior to the time that you went into the morgue, had you been told anything about the nature of the injuries of President Kennedy? No. Did you hear of anyone, again, prior to the time the autopsy began, who, who engaged in any discussion about the nature of the wounds? No. I was more or less away from the rest of the people. When did you first see a casket on November 22nd? I don't recall what time it was. When they brought the body in. Let, let me try it another way. Where were you when you first saw the casket? In uh, the uh, autopsy room. Okay, so you were in the morgue room and the casket was brought in. Right. But just to make sure you didn't see a casket prior to that time, either in the hallway or on the loading dock. No, I was, we were in the room for maybe a half an hour before they brought the uh, casket in. Could you describe who it was who brought the casket in? Do you recall? Not really. I think people in certain clothes. Who they were, I don't know. Could you describe generally the casket, please? It was kind of a gunmetal gray, dull finish. Do you recall any knobs on the side or handles? It had handles on both sides, yes. They were, I believe, a brass type, brass colored in them. Do you recall whether any handles on the casket were broken, or did you? I didn't pay that much attention to it. Did you see the casket opened? Yes. Could you describe whether there was one piece of an opening or two pieces? How, how it was one piece. And was the, the top either lifted off or was it hinged? It was hinged. Are you playing with the term shipping casket? Yeah. And are you playing with the term ceremonial casket? Yes. Do those two terms mean, describe different sorts of caskets to use? Do you have an opinion as to whether the casket that you first saw President Kennedy arrive in was in a shipping casket or ceremony? It wasn't a ceremonial casket. It was uh, was a very plain, inexpensive type casket. Did you see the casket opened? Yes. Could you describe whether there was one piece of an opening or two pieces? It was one piece. And was the the top either lifted off or was it hinged? It was hinged. Are you playing with the term shipping casket? Yeah. And are you playing with the term ceremonial casket? Yes. Do those two terms mean, describe different sorts of caskets to use? Do you have an opinion as to whether the casket that you first saw President Kennedy arrive in was in a shipping casket or ceremony? It wasn't a ceremonial casket. It wasn't. Uh, it was a very plain, inexpensive type casket. Uh, is, is there any other way, in addition to what you've said, that you could describe the difference between the casket that he arrived in and what you understand to be a ceremonial well, casket? Well, you, you know that I've been to the, what I would think would be a ceremonial casket where the top half opens from the chest up or waist up, whatever, and it's nicely lined, and it's, I guess you can say, pleasant to look at, but this was just plain. Did you see any at any time any of the lining of the casket that he arrived in? I don't. I, I more than likely I did, but I don't recall what it looked like. 
Did you yourself see the casket being opened? Yes. Uh, how was President Kennedy dressed or wrapped? Or he was in a uh, rubberized type body bag. Had you ever seen a bag of that sort before? Yeah. Where had you seen it before? At Bethesda. And, uh, we had an accident more than tanker that I was on before I went to Bethesda. We had to put a patient in the body bag freezing. You'd call this a body bag? Yeah. Uh, were, how are body bags sealed, if at all? The zippers. Did the zipper go down the side, the front, or? Maybe it went down the center, the front. Do you recall who uh, removed President Kennedy from the from the bag? Uh, yeah, it was a man by the name of O'Connor, but I don't know the rest of the people. I wasn't that familiar with the, a lot of the staff that are at the school. Was the bag opened by cutting it or by opening no, the uh, after the, the zipper was uh, taken off, was there any other covering on the body? I think the head was wrapped, other than that, no, that I can recall. What was the head wrapped in? Uh, I think it was a sheet or several towels. One, I'm not really positive. No. Could you describe what happened after the, the zipper had been opened, just in terms of removing the body from the from the casket and mm-hmm. Three people picked the body up and set it on the autopsy table. Okay. Then they unwrapped the head and they started. Approximately how much time, as best you recall, was there between the time the body was put on the table and the procedures began? with the autopsy? A half hour, 45 minutes, something like that. What were the first things that were done to the body after it was unwrapped? And I would include x-rays, photography, incisions. What What is the order that you remember the events happened? Well, I started taking uh, pictures, you know, just general body pictures. And uh, then x-ray came in and we had a lead. They did their uh, thing with the x-rays, and then we were allowed back in there. I think that was just for safety reasons. Those x-rays were wiped out every bit of film we had anyway. Do you recall which camera you used at first for these general body When I first started, I do believe it was the 35-millimeter camera. Let me go back just one step and ask you whether... Mr. Stringer gave you any instructions or directions prior to the time that you were in the morgue about what should be done or what shouldn't be done in terms of... You said do everything and anything the doctors wanted. Did he make any suggestions to you about using one type of camera versus another type of camera? Yeah, he did. He said it'd be better to use the big one. The big one rather than the 35 millimeter. Did, did Mr. Stringer at any point say to you, don't take such and such a picture or do take such and such a picture? Did he leave that up to you? He more or less left that up to me unless uh, there was something he wanted done. Then he asked me to come over and take a photo of this. But generally, he said, get uh, pictures of the room, you know, all the people in it. She did probably want that later on anyway, so we did
Now, when you referred a moment ago to the general body pictures that were taken before the x-rays, did those photographs include any people in the room? It might have included a few hands, but I think that was about all. Okay, when did you take pictures that included people in the room? Uh, it was after the autopsy started and we got stuff all crowded. I didn't know how many more people were going to come in there. So I figured I'd better get that out of the way and then I'd be free to do what the doctors wanted. With those uh, pictures of people in the room, do you recall which camera those were taken with? Under 4 by 5 I think so. Apart from Mr. Stringer, did anyone else in the room give you any directions or instructions regarding taking or not taking the photographs? No. Was it your understanding during the autopsy that Mr. Stringer was the person principally responsible for taking the close-up photos? Yeah. Can you tell me how the procedure worked in terms of how Mr. Stringer took the photographs and any role that you played to assist him in taking those pictures? He did all of his work by himself and uh, the help of the technicians of the position. Did he I didn't handle the body at all. Did he... Mr. Stringer physically moved the tripod himself? Yeah. And when, after he had finished taking two photographs and removed the cassette from the view camera, what did he do with the cassette? They turned right over to Secret Service. Did he give them to you no. first? So you never touched them, the cassettes that he did? Right. You take them and then Secret Service would take them. Did you attempt to keep track during the course of the autopsy, of the number of photographs that were taken? No. I just kept track, more like on the uh, film packs, to how many I used. And that was it. How many cassettes were basically used. Do you remember now how many cassettes were used? Eight or ten, I believe. I'm really not that positive on that. So this would be 8 to 10 by Mr. Stringer. Yeah. And from what you said before, those would be both color transparencies and negatives, as best you recall. Yeah. So if there were then approximately 8 to 10 cassettes, that would mean that there would be conceivably between 16 and 20. Okay. Did Mr. Stringer take any black and white photographs, as best you recall? I don't recall if he did or not. So he might well have taken them, but you just don't recall, or you think that he didn't? I don't think he did, because uh, the cassettes were all loaded with color. Did you take black and white photographs? Yes. In the 4x5 format? Mm-hmm. As best you recall, those were in press packs. Yes, sir. Right. Could you describe for me the different positions the president, the body, was in for the purpose of taking photographs? I'll just give you an example. I assume one that he's lying on his back, photograph taken. In addition to his lying on his back, what other views or postures was he put in? I think one was taken, that wound in the back when he was in a sitting position. I think that the body was propped up for that. And uh, another one more on the side, but I think it was on the left side. Just to make sure that I'm understanding, the first one is that his body is lifted up as if he's in sitting posture to take some pictures. And then another one, he's rolled, you think, onto his left side. 
Uh, was he ever put on his stomach completely, that you recall? I don't think so. Not all the way over. Were any photographs taken after incisions in the torso of the body? Yes. What photographs do you recall as having been taken? I don't recall. Did you take the photographs or did Mr. Screener? Mr. Screener did, I'm sure. Do you recall anyone having used any probes in the body during the autopsy? Uh, I think Dr. Fink did for that wound in the back, but it didn't go in very far and didn't let it go from there. Do you recall whether a photograph was taken while there was a probe in the body? I don't think so. Do you recall any probes in the head? No, no. I don't recall that. Do you, are you acquainted with the terms having the scalp reflected? Having the scalp pulled back? Just pulled back, back, yeah. Were any photographs taken with the scalp pulled back? Pulled back into place? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm glad. Folded. folded back so that the skull would be exposed. I believe there was, yes. Do you recall whether any pictures were taken from uh, angles very close to the inside of the cranium? Yeah, I think Mr. Stringer did that when the body was on his side. Were any pictures taken of President Kennedy from above? Meaning like from the ceiling? So, for example, with uh, either you or Mr. Stringer climbing a ladder, for example, no, taking pictures of that I can recall, no. You don't recall any ladders in the room? No. You said previously that you took 35 millimeter photos. Approximately how many rolls of film did you take? Uh, just part of one roll. Mm -hmm. Only six or seven exposures. Was that film in black and white or color? I don't remember. <coughs> what was done with, when, when you had finished with that one roll of 35 millimeter film. What did you do with that? I took it out of the camera and gave it to uh, one of the uh, secret agents. Did you ever see that film subsequently? No. Have you ever told any researchers that you took four or five rolls of film? No. Approximately how many <coughs> black and white four by five shots did you take? <coughs> about eight or nine film packs that would be what 111 somewhere between 99 and 111 <laughs> those were all just as we said black and white yes four. and approximately 100 so to speak right around there yeah did you take any films from duplex film holders or was everything press packed for you? I don't remember. I may have used one, one cassette, but I, I don't remember right now. What did you do with the 4x5 exposures after you had completed them? After the uh, pack was used, they were given to the security officer. Have you ever seen any of those films since? Now, you mentioned earlier that some photographs, or at least a photograph, was taken after there had been an incision on the body. Is that right? How long during the course of the autopsy did you take photographs 
And let me try it by saying, did you do it throughout the entire autopsy, or was it just towards the beginning, or how did that work? Throughout the whole autopsy. Was the same true for Mr. Stringer? Yeah, he was there until the autopsy was finished. After the autopsy was completed, did you take any further photographs? No. Were you present in the room when any reconstruction was performed on President Kennedy? Did you take any photographs after reconstruction of President Kennedy? No, I did. After the autopsy was completed, did you leave the room with Mr. Stringer? Or do you know whether he stayed in the autopsy room? He left. I mean, I, I left and went down to the lab taking cameras and all that stuff back. And um, he came down a few minutes later. It was a minute or two later, so he probably left right after I did. After your work had been completed, did you ever talk to Mr. Stringer about what had happened that night? I don't think we did. I mean, it, it was a very upsetting day for everybody. I think when we were done, he just came back to the office, did some paperwork, and then he went on home. And since I was on duty that night, I just stayed right there in the apartment. Did you ever hear of anyone taking any photographs of President Kennedy's body after the autopsy was completed? No. Do you know whether there were any photographs? Well, let me withdraw that. Did you see the brain removed from President Kennedy? What little bit there was left, yes. Were any photographs taken of the brain? I think I did someone who were putting it in that stainless steel tail. When you say that there was not much left, what do you mean by that? Well, there was less than half of the brain there. Do you, did you notice whether the doctors weighed the brain? I don't remember. Did you ever participate subsequently in any post-autopsy examination of the brain? No. Did you ever hear whether any other photographer participated in a post-autopsy examination of the brain? No. We'd like you to describe, as best you recall, what the, provide a description of the injuries to President Kennedy's head, so we'll say from above the throat, not the throat, but above the throat. What did you observe on the body? Uh... Right side in the back was gone. And just a big gaping hole with fragments of uh, scalp and bone hanging in it. Now, when you said that, you put your head, your hand on the back of your head. Yeah, the occipital. The occipital area of that. Did you see any other, in addition to that injury that you just described, did you see any other injuries to the head? Yeah, there was a flap of bone over on the side above the temporal area. So, and I... Those again that your gesture is you're pointing above your right ear. Yeah. Uh, how close of an observation did you get to the wounds on President Kennedy's head? About five, six feet, something like that. So the distance, I'd say the distance about you and I are sitting from each other is, is about five feet or so. And it would be about that distance. That was as close as you got to the head. Uh, what What was the position of the body when you made that observation about the nature of the body? side. Did you observe any injuries to the neck or throat? No. To me, it looked like a, a, a tracheostomy was done in the throat. Kind of over-exaggerated, but what it looked like. When you say over-exaggerated, you mean... Oh, it was bigger than, than I've seen before.
Thank you for listening to episode 87 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.